This is a special joint presentation by WNXP and WPLN, Nashville Public Radio. I just want to thank the Nashville community as well. Because they, oh, yeah. they yep. made us. Nashville. Yeah. Nashville. We want to build a culture. If you could build a culture and people buy into your culture, you'll be around forever. And so we just didn't want to touch you just with the audible. We wanted to make sure we can take control of all your five senses. That's why we burn incense. That's why we dapped you up. You smell like us after we finished you dapping you up because we was putting the oils. we was putting the oils on frankincense, Egyptian musk, pheromones. We no, had a still burning. Say, man, people yeah. still say, like, when I, if I wear oil or something, like, man, you smell like love noise. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were very methodical right, so. in what we were trying to do. Yeah. In their younger years, these guys went all out yeah, to cultivate like, a vibe. Yeah. You're hearing them affectionately roast their old signature fragrance, but the love noise culture they're referring to, it's really about a sound. We haven't, as a group, gone this deep on love noise in a very 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 long time so this is right ever this is have we ever they're looking back on something they put in motion 20 years ago love noise the weekly open mic style spoken word neo soul and conscious hip-hop party that was so very 2003 incense and all and love noise the concert promotion outfit they grow to be behind it were these five eric holt who booked artists and dealt with venues. The money guy, Bryce Page. Chip Hockett handled marketing and sent out the street team. LaSalle Chapman, who played host and created flyers. LaSalle, I mean, I believe you were colorblind at the time. Or you yeah, are still, I, I mean, at the time, still colorblind, <laughs> right. But we didn't understand how he was able to help design the flyers. And Antoine Nunn, a.k.a. Mo, a.k.a. DJ Soundboy, who worked the turntables back then, and make sure his co-founders keep it real now. All right, I'm gonna give you their real names. That's Skip, that's B. Rice, that's Sally Poe, and that's E. (laughs) There you have it. They were bound for serious things, like putting on concerts so notable that they made the local news. Live from WPLN News in Nashville, I'm Nina Cardona. The Nashville Symphony is quickly rescheduling concerts called off because of COVID-19. And first up is a one-night event at a Sand Amphitheater with legendary rapper Nas. A spokesperson says the Nashville Symphony has never performed a concert with a rap artist. There was a time not all that long ago when pairing one of the city's most venerable music ensembles with a legend of mid-90s New York rap would have been unimaginable for Nashville. Love Noise made it happen. But how? What did it take for those five guys to start laying the groundwork? to push Nashville, so closely identified with country music, to live up to the true breadth of its Music City moniker, to chip away at race-based misconceptions of genre, audience, and the music business, to champion local standouts, and to progress so far that they could stand side stage, taking in their handiwork when Nas fronted the symphony. A sellout crowd of nearly 7,000 people filled the Ascend Amphitheater, one of the city's largest venues. This was a watershed moment.
Nas only performed his breakthrough album Illmatic accompanied by dramatic string crescendos in a handful of places, and Nashville was one of them. Performers and professionals of color have always faced barriers in the city's most celebrated export, country music. But it hasn't been easy for black music makers to make headway here, even in genres that are widely recognized as domains of black creativity. For decades, lovers of black music had also been shut out of Nashville's live landscape. That's where Eric Holt and his Love Noise co-founders saw their opening. So we said, let's solve that problem. Let's create a space for artists that are positive hip hop, backpacker hip hop type guys, spoken word, cool DJs. And that's when Love Noise was born. L-O-V-E. Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio, and this is Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party helped change Nashville. Five dollars, no dress code. Young, cool, college students. Free, Free food. food. DJ on the soul deck. That's what Love Noise was. It's a safe space for black culture. They paved the way for what Nashville is today. Yo, peace, y'all. This is Common. It only makes sense to be a Love Noise on Sundays. Stay on it, all right? Stay in tune. Good music. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene. Sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation, Citizens Bank, and AT&T. You've got to remember that two decades ago, Love Noise launched in a very different environment. One where R&B and hip-hop were treated like they were undeserving of the spotlight. Everybody and their mama could tell you what wasn't happening in Nashville. Nashville was a tale of two cities. You had the, the city that young people of color, and then you had that sort of honky-tonk identity that Nashville was trying to set for itself in the early 2000s. That didn't inspire us. That didn't appeal to us. The progenitors of that mentality, that Broadway honky-tonk mentality, I don't feel like any of us felt comfortable in those places, and they made sure of that. I didn't fully realize the power of narrative when I arrived in Nashville, fresh out of college, and started hustling for any work I could get as a music writer. But I soon learned there were country legends to appropriately revere canonical recordings to catalog, historical episodes to recount. And when I started working for editors based in New York or LA, I found that they had their own expectations for what stories should be told about Nashville. More than once, I had to hold my ground against pressure to portray it as a place where the music was perpetually stuck behind the times. They were almost never interested in the story of what Love Noise and its partners were doing for black music scenes. We're accomplished at telling stories of country music's cultural and commercial triumphs. The thing is, the musical narrative of Nashville remains woefully incomplete without this chapter. The founders of Love Noise had a far more complete vision of what Nashville was like. Eric and Chip grew up here, their first cousins, and everybody but Eric attended one of the city's premier HBCUs, Tennessee State University where Eric's mom was a professor. In college, some of the guys began dabbling in party promotion or joined street teams for record labels. 
But they really got into the music business by trying to launch the career of a Nashville rapper called B. Hill. So this local hip-hop artist, his name was B. Hill. He was 18, 19 years old, and he was a very good rapper. We call him Kanye before Kanye, self-deprecating, intelligent, really great performer, all of it. He was actually one of Eric's cousins, and the producer who provided those unreleased tracks, one of Eric's brothers. The young management team accomplished a lot on Hill's behalf, got his music played on college radio stations, and secured meetings with record labels in New York. We were doing all those things, so much so that he was getting uh, performance dates in Indiana, in Chicago, in Atlanta, in Memphis, and he was traveling around doing shows. The one thing they struggled to do was line up shows for B. Hill in Nashville, the city he was from. We would have the whole, you know, one sheet, and we would go in and say, hey, we want to self-produce a local show. This guy does hip-hop, here's his music. And at the time, he was an entity, you know, in the city with a good reputation and all of that. And, you know, the responses we would get from venues at the time would, sorry, we don't do hip-hop here, sorry, we don't do R&B. Some venues would even say, sorry, we don't do black music. Ultimately, B. Hill decided to stop pursuing a rap career, but the guys who'd been managing him wanted to keep going. I followed Nashville artists who happened to be black across months or years of working with whatever resources they can gather to try and make the music they want to make, whether that's hip hop or country or something else entirely. And more than one has described to me the feelings of futility that accompany their striving, the fear that nobody will recognize their labor in their lifetimes, that they won't truly have a home in their hometown. So we sat down, we said, let's try to solve some of the problems that we saw with managing B. Hill. And one of the problems was not having a great place to perform in Nashville. After a short break, the five founders sit down and open up their archives for the first time. I reflect back, you know, 20 years ago, and I look at my brother sitting here at this table, and on one word comes to mind, growth. It is one of the things that you don't see a lot of, especially with five black men able to work together for a long period of time. We'll hear what it took to pull off their first true Love Noise event. I'm Julie Height, and this is Making Noise, a collaborative four-part series from WPLN and WNXP. Hey, everybody. We are throwing a Sunday night party for this podcast, and you are invited. We're doing it March 3rd at Analog inside the Hutton Hotel. There's going to be music, some voices from the show, the founders, key figures of Love Noise, and of course, senior music writer Julie Height live and on the stage. It's going to be an awesome way to get together with people who love supporting local music and the work of Nashville Public Radio. You can find tickets at wpln.org slash making noise. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene, is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation. Creating generational change, one person, one family, one community at a time, by giving all their energy to inspiring a positive and tangible impact through programs and partnerships. AT&T 
driven by their conviction that connecting changes everything and actively working to help communities thrive in today's digital world. Learn more at att.com slash connected learning. And Citizens Bank, a community-minded, purpose-driven financial institution celebrating 120 years of empowering individuals, families, nonprofits, and small businesses to fulfill their financial goals. Learn more at bankcbn.com. Back in 2003, concert promotion was still a low-tech business. There was only one way for the Love Noise founders to get the word out about their first Sunday night event. Print a bunch of flyers. 2003, this is before Instagram, this is before Facebook, this is before any type of social media. So everything was hand-to-hand. We had to hit the streets and really getting people facing and let them know this is where it's going to be. There was a lot of hustling going on and a lot of people coming together to try to make this thing happen. Piled on the tables were storage tubs holding old photos, merch, and newspaper clippings. At some point, one of their partners had even compiled a scrapbook. I was surprised that they'd managed to hang on to a copy of the very first postcard-sized flyer they ever created. And apparently, so were they. Oh, man, you have this? On that first flyer is a close-cropped image of a woman applying mahogany lipstick. Maybe she was getting done up to go somewhere. Or maybe she was already out, touching up her lips in the bathroom. The name Love Noise is superimposed in aerial font with ombre effect, brown fading to white. A simple design that sent a message. On the Sunday night of Labor Day weekend 2003, Love Noise was the place to be. But there's one thing that distracts. A tacky white rectangular sticker with the venue address was clearly slapped on later. Faintly visible beneath it is a different address, like the plan changed at the last minute. Eric Holt says that's exactly what happened. The very first love noise was originally scheduled to be at a hotel near Vanderbilt. This hotel had a ballroom that tons of people had rented in the past, and we had a connection there, and we rented the ballroom to have the first Love Noise event. They had a new manager. They found out that the event was an African-American event, a black event, and literally they said, hey, you can't do this event here. Love Noise had come up against Nashville's racially coded barrier. I'm sure they had to get a lot of bangs and slams in the face and you know, unnecessary conflicts with people because of what they were seeking to do. That's Mimi McCarley. In her college days, she got hooked on Love Noise concerts, and she went on to start a Nashville-based company that helps hip-hop, pop, and R&B music makers take control of their careers. So she understands what Love Noise was up against. When you believe in something, no's don't affect you. It's like, tell me no faster so I can get to the next venue. For Love Noise, it was a good thing that one of the founders was friendly with the folks operating the brand new B.B. King's Blues Club. It was the weekend that they opened. And uh, one of us knew uh, the manager there, the bar manager, and he said, hey, y'all can do it in the basement here. We have a space and we don't have plans for it. It was Sunday night. And at that time, uh, downtown Nashville on Sundays, it was a ghost town. These days, the tourist bars of Lower Broadway attract so many revelers, the sidewalks can't even hold them. But back then, no downtown establishment could count on drawing a crowd on a Sunday night. When we opened the doors, the capacity of that venue was 400. We had 600 people show up 
and that was the first Love Noise event. So that experience, uh, getting kicked out of the ballroom, was actually a blessing in disguise because it put us on a path uh, to move forward. And that was just the first success. Hearing the way that Holt tells the story, you can pick up on a spirit of resistance and resilience beneath the professionalism. It's taken all of that to make headway. It's hard for me to put my finger on when I first heard about Love Noise. I feel like I've been on their email list forever. And that's how I started finding out that artists whose records grabbed me were coming to town. Anthony Hamilton, Maxwell, Michelle and Big Crit, Janelle Monet. It's also how I got to check out a lot of homegrown talent. Over the years, the further I dug into covering music that was getting overlooked in Nashville, the more the work I was doing intersected with the work Love Noise was doing. That was the operation at the heart of so much of the action. Most showgoers don't pay attention to concert promoters. The people laboring behind the scenes to broker deals with venues, bring artists to town, and make sure that the tickets sell. And there are plenty of people in this city and beyond it who have never heard the name Love Noise. Brian Sexton is a community developer who works to make Nashville more affordable for musicians. He still remembers hearing about Love Noise as an upperclassman at Tennessee State. At first, he thought it sounded like a suave tool of seduction or something. Like, what? Love Noise? Is that a thing you're supposed to do? Like, is that like is something you do with your lady? You're like, well, what, what is that? I don't understand what it is. Like, I didn't know what it is until someone put me on it. Like, oh, they're a promotions company. Oh, they actually create a space for entertainment professionals, primarily folks of color. But if you're gifted, it didn't matter what color you were. But what Eric and his team did, they actually made sure that we had some place to go. And a scene began to grow around contemporary black musical expression and experimentation just as soon as it was given a little room. $5, no dress code, free, free food. food. We had a soul deck with a DJ on the soul deck. On Sunday nights, DJ Soundboy favored the deep cuts. I had so many people come up there and ask me to pay some Jeezy or some T.I. or something. <laughs> nothing wasn't, against those artists. Nothing against nothing. those artists, but it wasn't that vibe. So I had the incense. If the incense was gone, we was on some soul stuff. So <laughs> that's what it was. It was neo-soul. It was old school hip-hop every night, and people loved it. Loved it so much that they're glad to finally be asked about those days. I mean, they were bringing some of the best R&B music to the city. So you kind of had to go. So it was like, finally, someone in Nashville is creating a lane for African-Americans who not necessarily, I mean, we may like country music, but we have a, a different option. We have R&B, this soul. Um, and that, that was cool. That was really cool. All of the soul artists had to come to Nashville and had to be a part of the Love Noise Sundays. It just created a whole nother vibe. It was just such a, a feeling. And the feeling was, this is us, it's community. You would come in by yourself and leave with a friend. It was a place that was of a like-minded virtue and a place that people were going places and that we could commiserate with people who 
recognize what we were going through. It's a part of Nashville's history. There's no black music scene. There's no soul music scene, especially for original music and artists here in town without Love Noise. That's what Love Noise was. It was everything. It was them and them alone. Them and them alone. Fighting for a space in Nashville for black artists to do their thing and gathering some momentum. But the Love Noise founders also knew that they weren't the first that Nashville had once been home to a thriving corridor of jazz, blues, and R&B clubs, many of them with black proprietors, that the city had allowed that scene to be demolished and disrupted to make way for an interstate. That's not the story that Nashville likes to promote, but it's essential to understanding where we are. So that's where we're headed next, further back in time and right down Jefferson Street. catch episode two of Making Noise and all four parts of this podcast from WPLN and WNXP over the next three Thursdays. Making Noise is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can read more and share this show with your friends by going to WPLN.org forward slash making noise. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer. There is no way that I could have made this show without editor Tony Gonzalez and producers Justin Barney and Marquise Munson. Additional editing and guidance from LaTanya Turner, Mariba Knight, Nicole Kemp, Jason Moon Wilkins, and Magnolia McKay. Fact-checking by Emily Siner. And there's a whole team that's helped with the logo, the website, the rollout, and an event we're throwing on March 3rd at Analog in Nashville. Thanks to Nicole Kemp, Rachel Yacovone, Mac Limeball, and Carly Butler. The music you heard comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from the Creative Commons of the Free Music Archive, where we found the artist Holizna and his tracks Bus Stop, Chills, Winter Blues, Life on Cassette, and Busking in the Sunlight, as well as Dollar Theater by Jalen Warshawski. You also heard clips of Janelle Monet, Nas, Bryant Taylor, B. Hill, and Etta James. Nashville Public Radio has big ambitions to do more in-depth journalism and special series like Making Noise, and you make this possible. I'm Tony Gonzalez, the news director at WPLN, which is a community-supported public radio station. And what that means is that the largest share of our funding comes from local listeners who contribute. The place to do that is at wpln.org give. And when you make a donation there or become a sustaining member, let us know what you think about Making Noise. There's a comment field that you can fill in, and yes, we do read those comments. So when I say in-depth journalism or special series, I'm thinking about some of our most ambitious work, that reporting, writing, editing that can take months of effort before you hear it. Hopefully you got to listen to The Kids of Rutherford County by Maribyrnong Knight. That was in partnership with Serial, The New York Times, and ProPublica. 
That was revelatory, investigative, narrative journalism that really challenges us to think about our community and systemic challenges. In recent years, WPLN reporters have also gone deep to examine Nashville's affordable housing crisis and how police officer training is evolving and the gaps in COVID-19 response programs that left some communities vulnerable. All of this work is a testament to community support of turning your contributions into a stronger newsroom that can deliver informative and thought-provoking and essential stories. We want to do more. We want to always be improving. Come along with us by contributing at WPLN.org. The Give Now button, it's right there at the top of the page. Thanks for listening and for supporting local, independent journalism.